Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. So how do we identify who our ideal customer is and who we advertise to might not be the actual homeowner? So it's different. It's not, it's a whole different um, way of running a business now with everything online the way it is. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Well, hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, we are so lucky to have Colleen Cole as our guest. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Oh, yes. Um, so today, uh, Colleen has uh, so many different areas of business experience that we could dig into, but let's start like we start with most people and tell us about how you ended up as an entrepreneur and a business owner. Oh, well, I was a nagging wife. We had a leaky <laughs> basement. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, that's very true. Um, in those days, we lived in a very old house on uh, Lawrencetown Road or East Lawrencetown Road. Um, and every time it rained, um, water would come in through cracks in our foundation like a faucet was running. And I hated it. And Bill worked away a lot. And sometimes he'd be away a week at a time. And that left me to clean up all the mess by myself with three small children. And I nagged constantly about it. Um, the work he was doing at that time, he was project manager for a large company who did a lot of tenders for like Texaco and the big gas companies where they replaced the underground storage tanks for oil and gas. And part of that process would be injecting um, some of the intrusions where the pipes go through those. Okay. And one day, yeah, so he asked his boss, can I take home some epoxy and see if I can fix my basement? And over a period of time, Bill and Danny was like four and five years old at the time on Saturdays. That's what they did is they worked away at figuring out how to repair the cracks in the basement of that old house on uh, Kroll Road in Lawrencetown. And okay. they did. We had probably five or six, seven cracks. They repaired them. Now, mind you, at one point they blew half the wall off. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to figure out gauges and pressures and things like that and um so once he dried up our basement then he worked on my mother's his mother's and he went to his boss and said hey we could do basement repair and his boss said absolutely not I only want to deal with the you know million dollar tenders and um so with that we started wg cole contracting <laughs> um as a sole proprietorship and put an ad in the bedford daily bedford sackle daily news it just said leaky basement call 827-3855 and um is that still so a number 
No, but the 3855 is still the number for 442-3855 is our HRM franchise number. Oh, nice. Okay. Yes. So with that, we put the ad in the paper and had a business line put into our host. Uh, we had three small children at the time, plus I babysat other children. Um, so we ended up converting their playroom into an office. When that business phone rang, all the kids would yell, Permacrete, because we called it that, but that's not what the name, it wasn't registered. So uh, yeah, so Bill would, I would page him if somebody called and after work, he would go and do the estimate and then he would book, he got every job um, and he would do the, in those days to repair a cracked foundation was a two day process, two steps. Um, so he would work on Saturdays and Sundays. And so that's how we started. And what happened is, is after about a year, the, um, Bedford Sackle news was doing an editorial in their spring homes fix up section. So they did an editorial on our new company, (laughs) which was wonderful. The problem is on Monday morning when Bill went to his office, his boss came in and slapped the newspaper down on his desk and said, what's this? And Bill said, yeah, this is my company. And his boss said, well, I want a part of it. And Bill said, well, I already gave you the idea and you didn't want anything to do with it. So no. And he fired him. So Bill had a company truck and everything like that. So he called me, I had to pack up all the kids and go in and uh, pick him up. He walked out of his office with a handful of things and was like, okay, so now it's sink or swim. So having a car full of young children, we had no choice. We had no savings. We had no business acumen. We had no idea how to really seriously run a business but we did so the interesting so you you guys did it just the two of you for a while or no did he immediately hire someone to help him how involved were you at the front end oh right from the very beginning I still have drawings on paper where I drew our first logo and then gave it to a graphic designer and he took it and made it real Um, In those days, we're going back 42 years. Yes. So our computer was, uh, what did our kids use at that time? Like they were little discs. There was no hard drive. And, you know, uh, Um, yeah. My neighbor taught me how to, my neighbor, how to do manual bookkeeping, double entry. And I still have our first bookkeeping books. I didn't know how to do any of that. Then I registered for night school to take bookkeeping. I learned Bedford accounting, which was the beginning of simply accounting. Um, Yeah. So, but it took probably, oh, I don't know how, what the time period was before we started hiring technicians. And then they would come to our back door, come into our kitchen in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning and get their contracts for the day for jobs. And so that was in the late 70s. And by 1990, we had crews going all over Nova Scotia, repairing cracked foundations and waterproofing, installing sump pumps. So we were sending crews all over and a man kept calling uh, from Cape Breton. He owned a roofing company. And he said, every time I go in to fix a roof, they also have a leaky basement. And he said, can I buy your product? 
So by this time, we had taken that system that Bill used from the industrial component with the two component epoxy with pressure gauges and uh, a resin and a cure and a two-step process. Within 10 years, we had refined that to what Bill says and all, it's sort of crude. He would say to make it idiot proof. And that way there's no mixing and measuring on a job. That way when the men leave in the morning and not men, we also had female technicians too, but everything is pre-measured, pre-mixed in caulking tubes. And all they need to do is know the process. So um, what we did is we took all the guessing and measuring out of everything. So within 10 years, we had changed our formulations. Um, created our own product yeah. and then um, and the whole system of delivering it as well. So this chap in Cape Breton wanted to buy a product and Bill said no. He kept calling back and Bill was afraid that he would do a job that would ruin us right. if he did a crappy job. So one day this man's name is Peter McIsaac and he said, well, Bill, will you license me and train me and I will use your name? And that's exactly how the franchising was born. And that was Peter McIsaac living in Mabu, Cape Breton in 1990 in June. So we scrambled, we called our lawyer who had handled some of our um, affairs and he made a three page distributorship document. Peter yep. signed that. We signed him up as a one year test. And that was June of 1990, 31 years ago. And Peter is still with us. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's so cool. Oh, yes. my gosh. What have you yes. learned for people who are thinking about franchising? What would you say? Because now you've got a number of years under your belt with the franchise model. What are, if you were to say, what are your top two to three tips for somebody considering franchising? Like, what must be true for you to do it and then to execute? Okay. Well, number one, you have to have a proven system or product. Yes. That's repeatable. Mm -hmm. So, and that's part of what we had done um, to avoid problems on job sites, especially when our crews were going far from the shop. It's not like Bill could run out and fix it. Right. So we had to make sure they had good products, a good system and were well-trained yes. and they could repeat it and they could go job after job. One, one technician in one van could do three to four jobs a day. Um, if a, a four to eight foot crack. So um, that's what we did is we, we zeroed in to fine tune every aspect of the job. So once we began to become very successful and we're sending crews all over to do that, um, franchising is a growth strategy. It's not an in industry. People will call it like you're in the franchising industry. Well, no, I'm in the growth industry because that's how you duplicate your company by opening up franchise locations. So mm -hmm. in my mind, it's still a growth strategy. So, yes. um, so we sign a document, a franchise agreement with um, individuals who have incorporated a business and we enter that agreement business to business. So nobody buys a franchise. They enter into a franchise or a licensing agreement to use our systems, products, names, trademarks. Right. Yeah. So be sure, um, number one, you have to have a proven system that's repeatable. And you also must surround yourself with good advisors. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. 
there, um, in order to franchise in Canada, every province has different franchise laws. Um, so there are disclosure laws, there are timing laws of when you can, um, how you recruit and when you offer your information to prospective franchisees, um, the 14 day rule and how the disclosure document is delivered and franchise agreement. They have to have it in their hands for 14 days before they can give you a deposit or make any financial um, exchange to you. So, um, yeah, there are many rules. Um, the strictest provinces um, in the beginning, when we first started, our first province outside of Atlantic Canada was Alberta. And in those days, it was the Alberta Securities Commission. And that was the first time I heard the word disclosure document. It's like, ah, what's a prospectus? So that's when hiring accountants came in. Yeah. Before that, it was lawyers. Before it was dealing with lawyers to actually set up proper franchise agreements and all of the documents that are uh, required for that. And there are, um, I've dealt with many of them in Canada and United States. Um, but then once you're getting into, once we started moving out of Atlantic Canada um, and we needed stronger financial data in order to show um, our prospective franchisees. So um, we had a CA on staff for a number of years and um, you have to have your numbers. Number one, you can't, you can't recruit franchises without having those documents. So these are very important. Um, that's the basis for before you can even start all your legal documents and your accounting documents. So in my mind, you have to be prepared to make an investment. It's not because developing those documents and having that team would not be inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Yes. yes, if you're going to do it right and protect yourself and be on side. Well, yes. And in the beginning, you see, when we first started, so because Peter became, he did, our, our idea with Peter McIsaac was if he does well in Cape Breton, because that's far away for us, you know, yeah. like that long ago, it's a long drive to go fix a mistake if he had a problem or whatever. Um, he did very well. So it's like, hey, so we incorporated another company to be the franchisor and our original company became a corporately owned franchisee. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, but it was where we trained everybody and they went out on jobs with Bill and our son, Danny, by this time was in our company. Our daughter, Kim, came, um, you know, she sorted packing list purchase orders, matched them with invoices and after school. And once we had an office away from our house, our kids all worked at the office. Our two boys every morning would go with their father to the shop. And um, all our crews started at seven. They were there in the morning, uh, 6.30, quarter to seven with their dad, help all the crews get set up and off for the day. Then they would come home and shower and go to school. So wow. true family business. Exactly. So I love it when I see parents taking their kids to work. <laughs> so, but that's what, that's how our family rolled. And that's what we did. And they all knew we have work to do. And when the work is done, then we have fun. So, but back to Peter and Cape Breton. So that's when we decided to form another company. So that company um, was incorporated in August of 1991. So we're celebrating 30 years this year. Wow. Uh, franchising. Yes. Yep. In, in the beginning, 30 years ago, we joined the Canadian Franchise Association because we knew we needed 
professionals who knew what they were doing and we didn't have a clue. Um, you know, you get good at faking it until you make it, but <laughs> it's uh, when you're, you know, when you're signing very important documents, uh, you need to know what you're getting into. And our first agreements were very short, vague, um, not very well crafted compared to what we have now. But once we started advertising in August, once we incorporated, we had granted every location in Atlantic Canada by Christmas. Wow. And it's only because of our reputation. Yeah. And as soon as word got out that we were franchising, and I know one day I'll never forget, we had three contenders sitting in our office from PEI, all bidding for the PEI franchise. So it's like, okay, that. <laughs> so those are the, the things that, uh, you know, that we did in the early days. But once we decided... So that was actually quite an influx of cash. Yeah. Okay. And then that was our basis for expanding because up until then, our, our first operations manual had 32 pages. <laughs> now it is several hundred. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we did all the training. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and you look back and you think, well, how did I ever do all that? Probably. Yeah, but in those, see, so then what we did is because we were manufacturing our own products. So we hired an engineer. We had an engineer on staff, a CA on staff, um, a chemist on staff. So we very quickly hired because manufacturing were our own products. We needed to have material safety data sheets. We needed product sheets. Um, we need to, I was the first person in our company who was, certified for um, transportation of dangerous goods because our permaseal product at that time, um, you had to, I'll never forget trying to ship out our first product and they wouldn't take it. I had to hire a consultant to come in and do the documents because I, nobody in our company was certified. So it's like, well, we'll fix that. I took a course and uh, I basically focused in on what we needed for our, and here I am sitting in this course with mine managers from Cape Breton, the coal mines and like all these big companies and dangerous goods to them were explosives. <laughs> Very different, but I'm sitting there and I got certified. So uh, same with our safety program It's like, oh yeah, okay. In order to bid on these larger jobs, like tenders through the provincial, federal or municipal government, they require a safety plan. We didn't have that. So I took the core competency course and came back and um, developed um, a safety plan. And we just did what had to be done and then yeah. got it going and then hired people to take over and do the rest. Such a great story. Now, um, one of the other things is that you changed your name partway through. You're now Perma-Dry. When did that happen? Okay. Well, we own several trademarks. So um, our line of injection products are all called Permaseal. Um, Permaseal 1500, 2050, 1700, blah, blah, blah. 40, 34, there's a whole list. And each one is designed for a specific type of injection. So we inject cracks in freezers at like Sobeys and things like that. So it has to work in a cold environment. We, in um, slaughterhouses, in fish plants, 
where um, to prevent wisteria growing in cracks in the floor, we've uh, got products to inject in those floors that won't break down from the degreasing um, oil, you know, the oil from the fish, the degreasers, and is also approved to be in contact with food and potable drinking water. But part of that process is we trademarked everything and copyrighted everything. And what happened was once we expanded into the United States and then we got our very first website and we were permacrete um, on the www.permacrete.ca. And there was another company in the United States who had a bag of cement that they use for resurfacing, troweling onto, um, and they called it Permacrete. So they said that we did um, cause confusion in the market. So the week before 9-11, Bill and I were in New York City with the Federal um, Trademark Commission. Um, giving a deposition to defend our trademarks. And we lost our, our permadrive trademark. I mean, our permacrete trademark in the United States. So for a couple of years after that, what we did in the US is we rebranded um, to permadrive because that's, so another system we use for, at, at the time we had been using um, our waterproofing systems were called permadrive systems. So because it was already trademarked in both countries, we decided, well, let's just switch and operate under the brand Permadry. And so we did, we operated with two brands for a few years. And so then Bill got sick and died. And um, one of the first conferences, um, the advantage of being a member of the Canadian Franchise Association is attending their conferences. And if you were the president or CEO of a company, you get to sit at a round table with private meetings for some of the biggies in franchising. And I've sat at tables with Fred DeLuca, who's the founder of Subway. Um, and I think you all know of Cora. I've sat with Cora and her son. Um, so I have sat with many of the biggies. And I remember one meeting I was going into, and there were eight of us at the table, I'm the only woman. And a gentleman from the brand um, M&M um, was there and he brought up the conversation needing advice on, they were operating two brands because they lost their trademark in the United States for M&M because M&M Candies right. won over the Canadian brand M&M. And he was just talking about the cost of carrying two brands. And I said, well, I'm doing the same thing. And then once I explained what happened to us, all of these very experienced and seasoned um, franchise executives said, okay, if your strength is in Atlantic Canada and that's only 3 million people and you have, you know, like one in Regina, one here, one here, one here, there's still not a lot of strength. You have a lot of growing to do the rest of Canada and the United States. Do you plan to grow? Is that part of your growth strategy or are you gonna stay where you are? And I said, no, I, my son is my partner now and we are going to um, just continue to grow. So they said, rebrand now and the strength of Permadry, we need to change our name. And I said, oh, I can't do that. My husband built Permacrete and he's known, was known as Mr. Permacrete. Now that he died and people are gonna say that crazy widow, what is she doing to that company? Who does she think she is? And 
every fear I had, I put out there and there might've been tears with some of that. Those men answered every question for me. And when I left there, I was shaking. It's like, now I have to go tell Danny. And as soon as I mentioned it to Danny and he goes, that's brilliant. Let's do it. So then I hired a marketing firm um, who came and we rebranded everything. Um, we decided to do just a soft rollover. It took time and money and they came. We uh, used to do our, like our expos have all our franchisees come into um, Halifax uh, twice a year for training and whatever. And so this marketing firm did a beautiful presentation and all about marketing. And at the end of it, here was a new logo with a new name. And it's like, oh dear, I did the introduction and I sat at the front. Now everybody is behind me and I can't see the reaction. <laughs> that was, uh, Colleen, that was bad strategy. Anyway, all of a sudden I heard And then everybody chimed in and everybody clapped and then they stood and uh, yeah. Oh, wow. So that's how we, that's how and why we rebranded. So now we operate Permacrete Systems Limited is the franchisor who issues the franchise agreements and uh, that's our corporate name, but we operate the brand Permadry. So many companies operate many brands. Yeah. So we operate the Permadry brand and that's why. That is a very cool story, and um, took a lot think, of guts. I can tell you. <laughs> well, there's there's <laughs> levels of business versus emotion versus family, and you had to come up to a solution that satisfied all those needs for you or addressed them in a way that was respectful. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm thinking about is the the importance of advice and advisors and having that ha having those resources um did you consciously build those Colleen or you just kind of always were searching to be in the right place at the right time like how did you build how did you get yourself into these places with these you people have to, that knew your stuff yeah well always be curious and um building relationships is um you know, with your customers, with your employees, with your franchisees, uh, building relationships is part of running a successful business. You can't grow without people. Yeah. Um, you can't do it alone, none of us, unless you remain a solopreneur all your life. You need people. Um, so um, make it a win-win for everybody. And just on the uh, keeping an eye out through the Franchise Association and the International Franchise Association in the U.S., oh my goodness, the expertise is amazing. Yeah. Um, now, mind you, I have followed and taken some bad advice <laughs> that didn't work so well. And, um, you know, now when I look back, I think, well, I listened and we did it and things didn't work because. So it's evaluating why it didn't work. And OK, I'll never make that mistake again, because most mistakes cost a lot of money when you're dealing with you know, big marketing budgets or accounting budgets and, and um, yeah, yeah. So they can be costly and they hurt. And, uh, you know, you just got to keep going forward. Like you can't take a hit and, and die. You can't. Um, right. And you have to keep your brand fresh. And right now we're going through, um, it's been 11 years since we rebranded and, um, or since we did a complete refresh and yeah. we're going through that whole exercise now. 
and it's taken a lot. I've been, um, we've had some consistent people through the lifetime of our brand. Um, but now I've engaged a different copywriter just to get a different perspective because right now we're into different generations of homeowners, identifying mm -hmm. who your ideal customer is. You know, you can't just say every homeowner because that's really not true because quite often we, most of our advertising is to residential customers, although um, half of the work we do are through commercial and industrial tenders and contracts. So advertising for those is a whole different kettle of fish. Oh, for sure. But yeah. I still yeah. remember your Super Bowl ads though. Yeah. Do you know, so we ask every customer when they call in, how did you hear about Permadry? Most people will say TV. We haven't ran a TV commercial in four or five years. <laughs> so sometimes if I go to a meeting and I identify myself, people will automatically start reciting the commercial or our radio. Most of our franchisees, um, radio is one of their primary sources of advertising. And yeah. people hear it and they remember the jingle. It's like, okay, it's time to freshen that up. It's a little different now. So we're, we're finding customers now with the internet is a, you know, is a different, um, a different avenue um, being online, um, you know, because many homeowners are my age and um, I have, we still know that most the callers who make the initial call to our company are females and whether that's whether they've been assigned to do it by their husband <laughs> or whether they just decided they were like me and got sick of the leak in the basement and the husband mops it up and grumbles and says he'll get around to fixing it himself and she just takes the bull by the horns and does it I don't right. know but yeah but still most of most of our calls incoming calls are from females doesn't mean, though, that they're the homeowner because sometimes they're looking after aging parents. Mm. So how do we identify who our ideal customer is and who we advertise to might not be the actual homeowner? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's different. It's not it's a whole different um, way of running a business now with everything online the way it is. Did you find that shift? hard like did you were you on the leading edge or did you kind of have to come to it over time like how did you like when you've been doing business a certain way for a while sometimes it's hard to change gears like how did you keep yourself nimble oh, that's a good so bill um bill was a gadget guy and he always wanted whatever was the latest thing out there and he wanted yeah. to try whatever the newest computer system was whatever this was always wanted always wanted to try and he used to have one of the first cell phones in Nova Scotia um yeah. you know when you had the big thing in the trunk of your car <laughs> and yeah so um whenever anything new came along Bill had to have the latest gadget and implemented in our company and um our um our children are very much like that and particularly Danny and Danny is the one who is kept ahead of everything or up with everything and uh you know Kim and Jason as well they're always bringing ideas and saying hey have you tried this have you seen that this company is doing that so I, I have a lot of people that are influencing um, every step of the way and just keeping relevant and keeping up mm. with the times. And um, I know sometimes I drag my heels. It's like, Oh, I don't want a new cell phone. I don't want to, I just finally figured out how to use this one. <laughs> it's like, if you don't, if you don't keep up, you'll be left behind. 
So I don't want to be like Kodak and like Blockbuster TV um, in everything. So it's not only the products and the services that you sell is how you do business has to be kept up. And now with virtual, like it is, I'll tell you through this, um, the COVID, um, our business has been able to do many calls virtually as far as the quotations go. Mm -hmm. And we had been doing some, but um, just really um, refined our process. And um, it's taken off. Customers have adapted very well. They're very responsive. And um, so again, it's changed. The last year, we've completely changed how we do business again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and some of it's, you don't have a choice. And sometimes it's, you, you can get left behind. I see that in certain industries all the time where people have a set mindset and aren't willing to learn new things. Well, you have to constantly be upgrading if you don't um, and be curious and try new things. And if it doesn't work, well, go on to something else. When you think back, um, are you, when you think about yourself, let's talk a little bit about you, Colleen, for a second. And what do you think is the unique ability? What is the your biggest strength that you bring to the table? Oh, dear. <laughs> um, it might have changed over the years. Um, it's funny because I, I, I was on a webinar yesterday and it was about mindsets and it's something we all need to have. Everybody needs to have one or two coaches. <laughs> it's funny how in the beginning we didn't see the value of coaches as they were defined as they're defined today, but we definitely had coaches. They were just weren't. Um, right. Yeah. So anyway, one of these um, mindset was the difference between confidence and self-confidence. Okay, what's the difference? And well, confidence is knowing what you have learned and being able to retrieve that information when you need it and being confident that you know how to apply it. So I think I built confidence all along. The self-confidence took a while and um, mainly because in our business, I was, um, when Bill was living, he was a very, he was the face of the company and the brand and Bill, people called him Bill Crete and was very well known in the franchising circles, in the construction circles as Bill Crete. People to this day still call when they're talking to me, they call it Bill's company. It's like, well, he's been dead for 12 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the self-confidence was something that um, took me a while to realize that self-confidence is knowing what you've been through and what you know, and being able to face anything that comes at you in the future regardless of whether it's something you've already tried or not. So I think self-confidence is tied into having the tenacity and the grit. So the tenacity to try things and the grit to keep going when it's tough. And our company has gone through, went through a terrible period when uh, during the two years that Bill was paralyzed due to ALS. Yeah. And then after his death with a transition of power and ownership and, um, you know, I inherited a job, <laughs> um, a title, a position 
Um, it's not something that I ever dreamt of having, nor did I really ever want, you know, but then here it's on me, but who is the better choice to go ahead? I went to work every day. I had an office next to Bill. So, um, you know, so knowing that, you know, I was fully able the very first day when we left the hospital, Danny and I uh, left. We The first stop we made was at McPhee Pontiac and the first signature, I signed leases for vans that the company had made a deal for and they were waiting for the lease signature. My first signature as president. Then we stopped at the church and then we stopped at our business and I went in and I unlocked Bill's office door and sat down at his desk. <laughs> that was a big step. It's like, oh, good Lord, what am I going to do? And um, you just do what you have to do. And one of the things that I found, because I do a lot of volunteering with um, other spouses whose husbands have um, had ALS, um, many of them will eventually go back to work. You know, they work at the credit union or they're a teacher or whatever. But when I go back to work, I'm sitting right in Bill's legacy. His handwriting and his files are right there. So I could never escape anything. And I had big shoes to fill. Big Bill wore boots. When he died, he had 17 pair of cowboy boots. So <laughs> he had big boots to fill. And it took me about two years to figure out I can't fill Bill's boots. Danny cannot fill Bill's boots, nor should we. We need to take this company and run it to. And I was asking, what will Bill do? What will Bill do? What will Bill do? And um, I know I. So for me, being able to transition into going from competency and confidence to self-confidence. And you know what? Sometimes Danny has said to me, um, you know, I say, Danny, you didn't reply to me. Um, I need your help to make this decision. And he goes, you're on the right track. You're gonna make up your mind. You're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> so, Isn't that funny? And I, I kind of have done that. You know, you've got to do what you have to do. And I did it anyway. And I can look back now and see many decisions that I made. I did it anyway, whether they're right or wrong. So I did it anyway. And then you've got to take responsibility yeah. for that. Once you make the decision, go all in and do the best to make it work. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to open it up now to see if anyone has any questions. Um, Melanie's almost always good for one. Here she is. <laughs> Hi, Melody. Hi, Colleen. This was uh, lovely. This is the second time I got to hear your story from a, a slightly different context of especially the journey as a business owner. Um, just uh, really interesting. Um, I, something that struck me is that you, you were talking and I was, I was, you know, writing down little notes like lifelong learner and um, the whole growth mindset, which is a very popular and well understood catchphrase before Cindy, you were operating in a time and using these skills before they had those names like you mentioned you know we had coaches but they weren't called coaches they were just helpful people who were guiding us along um did, and i'm interested in your transition that that confidence to self-confidence and how much do you credit those advisors, people around you for helping you grow into that self-confidence? Oh. The recognition that you have the resources within you. Right. To do whatever you set your mind to. 
Right. Well, I can tell you the biggest transition that happened to me was um, when I was on a trip to Africa. Um, and this was two and a half years after Bill died and I had signed up to go. Bill and I had done a lot of traveling. We'd been to 34 countries and did a lot of philanthropic work and sent a lot of money to Africa from fundraising, but we had never been. And when I heard about this opportunity, I signed up. As it turned out, I was the only woman with nine men for 32 days. And we fundraised, bought Land Rovers, had them shipped into Kenya. Then we flew in and we picked them up and we did a track all through five countries, 6,000 kilometers, visiting all the sites of this NGO. The transformation came because I was in a place where I only knew the leader. I didn't know these other nine people or other eight people. And um, somewhat feeling intimidated and out of my element. Um, some of the things we faced with the poverty and the suffering, oppression were sickening and very, very hard to deal with. And even before I knew these guys' names, they're holding my hair back while I vomited when we went to our first slum. So <laughs> built very close relationships and then uh, very quickly. And one of the things that happened was over that month, because we're traveling together in Land Rovers for miles every day, um, and then dinner every night, we're brainstorming and masterminding about what we'd seen that day and what are our suggestions. It's all about um, empowering the people that are there doing the hard work. How can we help them and pour into fill their toolbox? Everybody on that team were business leaders. And I remember about two weeks in, one of the gentlemen saying to me, who's from a very large, successful company, and he goes, Colleen, I love listening to what you have to say. You have very good business acumen. So I pulled, oh, wow, I was surprised. And um, then he eventually asked me, he said, every night for dinner, you seem to have a different outfit <laughs> and you wear high heels. He said, do you have any hints on how I can get my wife to wear high heels? And I'm saying, oh, I don't think so. She's pregnant for your fourth child. I don't think there'll be high heels in your future for a while. <laughs> but, um, but it was during that time where I was completely away from everybody I knew and everything that was influencing me. So for the first couple of years after Bill died, a lot of people try to give you advice. And I was confused because they're saying, retire. You know, you've got all these, I had nine grandchildren at the time. Now I have 11, like stay home. You can retire and bake cookies and tell stories and whatever with your grandkids. But I didn't, I had the burning desire to still work, to work in my company. Why should I give it up? I worked all my life for this company, you know, and they keep calling a bills company or give it to Danny. It's like, hold on here. Like I'm not dead yet. <laughs> yeah. So when I was away from everybody and everything that influenced my thinking and I was being fed and seeing totally different things that I had to trust people I didn't know. And I also had to trust my own intuition and gut. And that's when I began, that's where the birth of the self-confidence 
And it's like, wow, I can do this. That's when I found out what Colleen is really made of. Because you see, my identity up until then was as Bill's wife, as the co-founder of Permacrete, um, as mother of Danny, Kim and Jason, as grandmother, as um, like I was active in our church and in our community. So I had all these roles and titles and people put you on that pedestal and they think, oh, she's so strong, you know, she can handle anything. But yet people influence your thinking. Mm -hmm. And I had to break away from all that. And when I got home and got off that airplane, uh, number one, I wanted to kiss the ground to be back home um, and be thankful for where I am and where, uh, you know, uh, what I have and who I am. And I had a whole new vision for my life, for my company. Um, and I haven't been the same since. Now it's taken time to work through some of the little obstacles along the way because I still run into, uh, I still run into mindsets. It's like, oh, where did that come from? Why do I back down? Like I can be an advocate for anybody. I will stick up and I will fight for anybody who I believe is uh, being treated unfairly or I will pitch my product. It's really hard to pitch myself though. So that was one of the biggest obstacles, but the beginning of it was on that emoji journey in Africa. And I say, God had to get me to the other side of the planet or I could find out who the real Colleen is. That's 10 years ago. That's fascinating. Actually being, it's almost like a liberation, scary, difficult um, journey. But so actually kind of breaking away from the well-meaning roles that you and, and admired roles before to find who you and, and get into that touch into that um, self-confidence and that that's fascinating thank you for sharing that well thank you because I up until then as I said I was always thinking what will Bill do what will Bill do and it's like no I can't I can't continue to think that way it's like it's my future because yeah. see, I thought when Bill died, my future died too. Everything that we had planned together, you know, we planned to do it as a couple and we were going to retire and transition the business to Danny and we want to travel and we want to do more. We want to travel the world and do more work. And I thought my call to doing mission work died with him because I couldn't see myself as a single woman traveling and going to some of those dangerous places. Mm. Bill and I went to 34 countries. I've now been to 47 and I have been to closed nations where um, um, uh, it's very dangerous to be and I intend to go back um, as soon as I can. So <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Melanie. Uh, if anyone else has a question, just uh, unmute yourself. But I, I must say that this, it seems to be quite, your journey is fascinating, Colleen. And, you know, um, you're, there's a number on your age and then there's what you really act like. And I'm going to give you, you're, you're still in your 20s and 30s. So you got lots of time left, Colleen, on that side. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, I have taken so much away from this interview in terms of, confidence and self-confidence and i i think that the you know the trip to africa just um peeled away what was already there because there's people you have to have a certain level of confidence or a je ne sais quoi if you will to just say yeah i'm gonna go take that safety course yeah i'm gonna just go do that we need to get it done right you didn't if it had to be done enough you went and got it done and I think maybe that might be our real bottom line, Colleen, is that every, just go get it done. 
Don't let anyone else's rules hold you back. I agree. Very good. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Colleen. And that is The Real Bottom Line for this episode. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.